So welcome, welcome back to this uh, day of meditation together with the theme of the ethics of emptiness and <coughs> organized by Gaia House. So this morning, so this morning we looked at uh, more looking at emptiness and emptying, and in a way what I wanted to show what, why it would matter for ethics to be connected to the ethics of emptiness, in order not to see, as somebody pointed out, uh, kind of not seeing as uh, emptiness disappearing, not existing. And <clears throat> And so what I wanted to point out with this uh, topic is that in a way what is very essential is to see that emptiness, not self, in a way refer to emptying. So that in a way this is going to help us to move from a more self-centered position, which then we would be the main object of interest in a way, and move us to what you could call uh, treating equally centeredness and equal centered. No, if we say other centered, then you have the idea that then we just think of others. When here the idea is to think equally of ourselves and of others. So there really is this treating equally. Uh, which come from the idea of awakening, but also is embedded in the term equanimity, which part of equanimity is about treating equally. So what is, in a way, ethics? I think, of course, you could see ethics are regulation, like in a way how society regulates itself. But in terms of the Buddha Dharma, the path of practice. Ethics is really about relationship, but it's also about how do we impact the world, how do we impact others, and how do others impact us, impact the world. So it's really about relationship. So it's very important to see that emptiness, not self, is not about non-attachment. Often you hear this word, non-attachment or even detachment, which I think is even worse. Detachment always may be thing of, in England, you have the semi-detached house. So I always think of that when I hear detachment. I need to be detached or semi-detached. Uh, but actually, not at all. Emptiness is to help us to relate in a more compassionate way, in a more wise way. So in a way, that's why I put the two together. Ethics is not, in terms of the Buddha Dharma, is not so much, it's not about regulation, but ethics is about relating, impacting and relating. It's really looking at how do we relate. So you could say meditation 
is in a way, especially in terms of formal meditation, is helping to empty the ground. So then we can treat equally ourselves and others. And ethics, which is one of the three training with wisdom. So you have the three training of meditation, ethics, and wisdom. And so you could say meditation and wisdom really bring this idea of emptying. And then it embeds it in the world because ethics is very much about being in the world. You have a wonderful text. Actually, there is two wonderful ethical texts. One is a Sigalavaka Sutta, or Sigalavada Sutta. And that one, Sigalavaka, or Sigalavada. I mean, there is different kind of pronunciation of it. And what is wonderful about this text is that it's about, you could say, ethics for lay people. But it's incredibly pragmatic. And it's about basically what is basically going to help you to be harmless to yourself and to others. I mean, this is really one of the basis of Buddhist ethics is harmlessness. This is really kind of in a way, uh, I mean, the, the path is about in a way embracing, understanding, conditionality and suffering. So, you know, ethics is about really causing no suffering or the least suffering we can do about ourselves and others. And so the Sigalavaka is this kind of three-page text about very practical things. Like one of them, that's one of my favorite, is don't saunter. So basically he's saying, don't walk about at night. I mean, at the moment, don't walk about. In France, at the moment, you can't not walk about at night. And so, you know, you would fit with the Sigalavaka. And what does he say? Don't walk about at night. He says, well, because you could encounter danger. Secondly, you're not protecting your home. Secondly, I mean, the police could arrest you because you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And off you go, you can cite all the condition, which possibly would not be helpful in terms of, you know, going around at night. So it's not saying don't do it. You can do it, but it could be a bad idea because of this, 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 and another. And then he looks a little bit also at what is helpful, helpful in one life. And then he looks at, you know, one of the wonderful ones, he looks at laziness. You know, some people you know, kind of, kind of saying, mm, maybe laziness is not such a great idea. And then he looks at, you know, laziness. And he's, oh, I'm too tired to get up. I am too tired to work or whatever it is. It's kind of like you think about teenagers nowadays. It's kind of very interesting text because it's so pragmatic. But if you look at it, it's very much about relationship. You know, you have, for example, the four things, uh, the kind of like a, a boss or a leader or people who employ an employer, the four thing an employer should do toward his uh, employee is to take care of them when they're ill, to give them holiday, to pay them properly, to not overwork them. I think he was kind of, you know, kind of, 
enlightened before the time. And yes, lots of things like this. And you think, whoa, 2,500 years ago. So really it's kind of like, in a way, the ethics is very practical in terms of how do I cause less suffering to myself? How do I cause less suffering to others? And not only that, how do I create more, you could say, safety, more happiness, thing of that nature? So in a way, the ethic of emptiness is really about relationship. It's reminding us that, as the person says in the chat, it's not just about sitting still. And it's really not about being away from the world. But he's seeing how embedded, how connected, how interdependent we are in the world, with the world. And so then the question comes in, how do we relate? So ethics is really about relationship. So for the first thing is, can we relate? To me, this is one of the important part about the ethics of emptiness, is can we relate? Because in order to relate, then we need to see the other. You see, if we totally self-centered, thinking we are the center of the universe and we relate everything to us, it's going to be very hard to see the other. Somebody was talking about self-absorption. But in a way, to me, what the meditation is going to help us by diminishing, emptying, is that we're going to see the other much more easily. And we, again, back to this treating equally. To me, one of the key of the emptying is that we're going to see the other for themselves, himself, herself, themselves. Because a lot of the time we relate to others through, in a way, our own interest. And here the idea is, can I see the other person for themselves as they are now? Because this is, in a way, a bit the challenge. When we meet somebody, especially somebody we know, generally we meet them with the history we have with them. And so the emptying in part would be, can I meet this person afresh? Can I meet this person in the moment, right now? So in a way, in, then so can we relate? Meaning, can we see the other? And then the next question is, how do we relate? So is our relationship from a Dharma ethical point of view, is it based on harmlessness? And that's kind of like interesting to look at because generally we really intend to be harmless. And then it, be, it becomes interesting, when is it that we can cause or not cause any harm? Or when do we cause harm? And are we aware that we have caused harm? This is also interesting because sometimes we are aware of it if the person tells us and sometimes we're not aware of our effect on other people. So the, the thing is kind of like to be aware, because often ethics is based on intention. But there is um, 
a teaching in the Seoul school I uh, experienced in Korea, where they say what we have to look in terms of ethics is what is your intention, what is your action, and what is the result of that action. So for me, part of the emptying would be to be aware, not only of our intention, my intention is harmlessness, but what is my action? Is my action harmless? Is a result of my action harmless? Because as we know, you could have lots of good intention, but the, the action could be harmful and the effect, the result of the action could be harmful. But then you would need, in a way we need to be aware of what do we say, how do we act, and what is the effect on people? So again, when we develop awareness, I think it's very important. When we develop awareness, it's not so that we become self-absorbed, but it's actually an awareness, which is not just specific, but it's kind of a generalized awareness. And I think this is something which is important that if there is an emptying, it seems to me one of the effects will be that then our awareness, friendly awareness, could become wider, less focused on ourselves, as much focused on others, so that then we become again aware of what is my effect on other people. I think that's really part of ethics, because it's not just the intention nor the action is what is a result of that action. So harmlessness, this is one of the key terms in terms of the practice of ethics. Then you have generosity. And generosity is kind of interesting to look at. What does it mean to be generous? Often generosity, of course, is associated with dana, with giving often associated with financial giving. But for me, actually, generosity is more about giving space and time to ourselves and others, but also giving the benefit of the doubt. Because we are so quick. We make, I mean, we have to. This is a survival mechanism. We make very fast judgment. But in a way, and often we will say, oh, this person did this because of that. But can we give the benefit of the doubt what, why the person did what they do, did what they did? To me, this is very important. Can I kind of become interested? Why did they do what they do? And try to understand. So to me, it's, there is this two aspect in generosity. Is this giving ourselves time and space? Because often in this quite fast, I mean, now COVID-19 has kind of a little bit slowed down so, somewhat for some people and speed up somewhat for others. But often because of this idea in a way of progress that we can really expect ourselves to change fast, other people to change fast. And personally, I think it takes time 
it really takes time. And so can we give ourselves space and time, especially in terms of wanting to change, wanting to transform our habits? So in a way, <coughs> to see that an ethical attitude is an orientation. And in a way, it's not a permanent state. It's like, I am going to be harmless 100% all the time. I'm going to be generous 100% all the time. Not at all. It's an attitude. It's a kind of orientation, a valuing of something. So we're going to try to do this. But it's, we recognize because of conditionality that actually we cannot change things fast sometimes. And so ourselves, we might not be able to change fast. Other people might not be able to change fast. But it doesn't mean at some point they will not be able to transform certain patterns, certain habits. Then you have respect. In a way, respecting ourselves, our body, our mind, respecting others, so in a way, this, I think, is really about, again, recognizing. Recognizing ourselves, our value, recognizing the value of others equally, but also recognizing, in a way, nowadays, in a more ecological way, our impact. Because I think our impact is not just on others or on ourselves. Our impact is also on the world, on nature, on resources. And so I think part of that respect is really recognizing the interconnection. And if we recognize the interconnection, then again, we want to be careful about the connection. We want to be careful of nature. We want to be careful of animals. We want to be careful of resources. So in a way, again, respect is recognizing the autonomy, recognizing the integrity of each person, of each life, of resources. And then again, being careful not to see that we're going to save the earth, but can we do our little bit? What is it? I think respect is what is it in my uh, ability? I think ethics is really asking us, what is in my capacity to do? Very likely I can't save the world, very likely many things we cannot do, but what is in our capacity to do? I think to me that's what the ethics of emptiness is about. Not so much idealism, but more a certain type of ethical pragmatism. What is it I can do? I mean, at one level, you could say, what is the least I can do? I think respect is it, what is the least I can do in terms of respecting myself, respecting others, environment, etc. What is the least I can do? And then can I do a little more than that? Then there is cultivating wise speech. And I think that's such an important one. And of course, again, with the COVID-19, we are possibly 
less possibility. But now it seems to go, you know, on Facebook or online or on Zoom or even if you share a space with people. You know, I mean, why speech is such a, uh, it's such a beautiful practice and it's also such a difficult practice because often this is so interesting from the point of view of meditation, from the point of view of emptying. Often we speak faster than we think. How does that happen? You know, you, you say something and immediately you regret it, thinking, I did not want to say that, or I did not mean it that way. And then it's very interesting. What is it that helped me to cultivate wise, compassionate speech? And what is it that does not? And so I think, in a way, what we need to look at nearly in terms of ethic of wise speech, it's what makes me not do it. And often it will be stress. Often it will be self-consciousness. I mean, that is an interesting one. Being so self-conscious that actually your speech is not wise. <laughs> that, that's an interesting one. This kind of like, you know, you say something and immediately, I should not have said this. How could I say this? And what happened there? And often I think we are a little agitated, a little confused, a little unsure. So that's, you know, we're looking at the conditions. What are the conditions that helps me to be more harmless? What are the conditions that helps me to be more generous? And what are the conditions that helps me to respect and wise speech? And then there is uh, clarity. This is a, an interesting one, clarity. What is, what is it that helps me to be clear? What is it that does not? And it can be so many different things. I mean, for some people, it might be taking alcohol. For some others, who knows, maybe watching too much TV or going down a rabbit hole on the internet or taking drugs or eating too much. I mean, there are so many ways we can be unclear. And then again, this is kind of like to, to watch out, you know, what is it that's going to be, I mean, what's going to help us to be ethical is to be clearer, is to be brighter. And so again, what are the conditions that's going to help me to be clearer, to be brighter? So as I mentioned already, we are generally intending, I presume, to be ethical. That generally is our intention. And then at times we are not. And to me, what, what, here where I see kind of in a way the ethics of emptiness connecting in a way with the meditation, the mindfulness meditation is in terms of the tonality, the Vedana. I don't know if some of you have heard that term. Vedanas. Ah, I did not get again the autocorrect. Let's see if we can keep it. Uh, 
Yes, Vedana. So Vedana means tonality of experience upon contact. When we see something, mm, I like it. When we hear something, mm, I don't like it. So this kind of immediate reaction. And so the Buddha says, in a way, with this tonality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither, we have underlying tendencies. And then in a way, you could say the ethical precept of do not kill, do not steal, etc. What are they? Why are they there for? And I would say those ethical precepts are there for helping us, reminding us of our underlying tendencies in terms of mindfulness of tonality. Because in a way, when we are not ethical, what happens? And I would say generally we are taken over, we are grasping at the tonality. So for example, the first one, do not kill, do not harm. Generally we don't, but when do we do? Again, we do because we experience an unpleasant tonality. And as soon as we experience an unpleasant tonality, then generally we're going to react in a quite fast automatic way. I mean, we know uh, in, if it was in the summer and we would be sitting in meditation outside and you hear, you hear a mosquito. It's very hard <laughs> to have kind and compassionate thought to the female mosquito want to suck your blood for uh, whatever purpose. So it's interesting. And then generally, you know, we go very fast to get the mosquito in one way or another. I mean, we can become Buddhist and then catch it uh, with a glass. So in a way, unpleasant tonality. We can also experience uh, what do we do when we speak? Like if we experience an unpleasant tonality very quickly, our speech, the tone, what we say becomes unpleasant. This is kind of very interesting too. That's a little bit what we were experiencing yesterday with Stephen and the maelstrom of stuff happening. Suddenly we were having this unpleasant tonality which kind of raised our sensitivity. And then it was like we were kind of, you know, sending it to each other. But, you know, we could make the choice not to do that. But this is a thing. Things are unpleasant. You see, this is a little bit the difficulty with the tonality. You might have something unpleasant here, and then you're going to distribute it over there. That's also what can happen. So no, that's why mindfulness of tonality, I think, is very connected to ethics. And in a way, this emptiness, the ethic of emptiness, because in a way, if we don't identify, if we don't grasp at the tonality so fast, then we can have the choice to creatively engage. Then again, like, you know, you have the, the precept of do not take what is not given. And there, I mean, why would we take what is not given? Why would we steal anything? Ah, because there is this pleasant tonality. You think, mm, I like this. Mm, I want this. So, you know, it's kind of like, there is something 
it's pleasant and so you want to acquire it for yourself. And kind of seeing that, you know, do I need it? Do I need it so much that I take it? Or often we do this with books. Oh, it doesn't matter. The library of my friend, they don't need it or whatever it is. It's interesting, but to notice, "Mm, I want this. I want this for myself. The same with uh, sexuality, because the precept is, you know, be careful with sexuality, do not harm. And why would we do this? Because "Mm," it's such an intense feeling. And then generally we became very self-centered in that feeling. Then there is uh, lies. Lies, it's fascinating. Why would you lie? When do you lie? I mean, you can remain silent. Me, that's what I would choose. I would remain silent. But if we lie, why do we lie? Either we lie in order to present ourselves as bigger than we are. And you can see a lot of this with people uh, in certain position who seem to do lots of things about their PhD when they don't have any or coming from this university when they never went there. I find that so fascinating, kind of, you know, kind of putting lots of things in their CV so that hmm, there can be this more pleasant feeling about it. Or you can lie because you know, if you broke something or whatever it is, you know, you, it's unpleasant and you don't want to get into trouble. So it's interesting, lying. Why do we do it? What's the underlying uh, tonality behind it? Then we have, again, uh, with uh, intoxicant. In a way, why do we drink alcohol or why do we take drugs or why do we get lost in this or that? And I would say for both, either because we enjoy the high or because we feel so bad, this is the only way to feel better. And then the question, of course, it could uh, make, make people feel better, but as long it could be harmful. This is a thing with intoxicant and why in the way the, the Buddha recommended not to take intoxicant because it could lead to harmful action and result toward oneself, toward others. So we know in noticing what's the tonality upon our action in terms of this ethical framework. But when we look at ethics, to see that in a way the ethics is not so much in terms of regulation, in terms of rules and regulation, but it's more in terms of inspiration. In a way to kind of like, in terms of harmlessness for ourselves, but harmlessness for others. And I think it also makes us question, do I live just from my self-interest or do I live for the common interest? And this is, a, this is an interesting challenge, the common interest. What is a common interest, especially nowadays? I mean, especially with COVID-19 at the moment. And because in a way, if we become individual, if we become an individualist society and everything depends on yourself, 
then in a way your survival becomes the most important thing. But if we're part of, in a way, a collective, if we're part of a community, then in a way we want, of course, to have differences, but we want, in a way, to be able to live together. So in a way, can we also cherish the common good? And from that, to me, there is this idea of community, of common good, that could be an important thing to look at in terms of the ethics of emptiness, that it dissolves the self-interest and in reinforce, in a way, the common good. How can we cultivate together in whatever way we can, the common good together. And then I wanted to share a little with you uh, this text, which I would again connect to the ethics of emptiness. So this is, a, so the first text I mentioned was the Sigalavaka Sutta, which you find in the Pali text. In, this is from the time of the Buddha, from the Theravada school. And then as I was in Korea, in Korea, one of the things that they have is they, for the monks and the nuns, they have this ritual. And every two weeks during the meditation season, which are three months, twice a year, they will recite some precept. So, Alternately, every two weeks, they will recite either the monastic precept or they will recite the bodhisattva precept. And then once a year, you have a big ceremony where everybody, the monastic and the lay people together, take this bodhisattva precept. And what is useful, important about this precept is that you take them again and again. So what does it mean that you take again these precepts? You hear them, you read them, you take them together. Actually, it's saying that the ethical path, the ethics of emptiness is conditioned. So we have to have a reminder again and again. So we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about this is what we intend to do, to act, go towards such a result. But we know there are weaknesses. We know we can fail in terms of ethics. And so again and again, we have to remind ourselves. So in a way, it's nearly like you re-inspire yourself. This is what I value. This is the direction I want to go in. And so in this text, you have the major precept, then the minor precept. But there is this wonderful description uh, in the introduction. I mean, I know the text because I heard it a lot when I was uh, a nun in Korea. And because over time I could start to understand what it was about, then I decided to translate them. And then that's why uh, there is this book called The Path of Compassion, which is my translation of the Bodhisattva precept. And so here is kind of an introduction to the precept. Because the ethical precepts are like a brilliant lamp which can disperse the darkness of the night. 
they are like a most precious mirror, which is able to reflect the Dharma in its entirety. So they are like a brilliant lamp, which is going to kind of bring light. And they're also like a mirror, which can contain the whole Dharma. They are like a most valuable jewels, which frees one from poverty and endows one with wealth. So really kind of they're saying this is really an important practice because sometimes in the three training of meditation, wisdom, ethics, often kind of people think, oh, ethics, you know, especially compared to emptiness, ethics is kind of a little less important. It has to do with everyday life, relationship, and things like that. But, but here they're saying in it, the whole Dharma is contained. It is a brilliant light. It's like a jewel, which will really enrich our life. And then I wanted to, to just kind of talk about, not all of them, because you have 10 major and 48 secondary, but just to look at three and to, to show what is, in a way, the ethics of emptiness, I feel is about conditionality really understanding conditionality. So this is the first one I mentioned, refrain from taking life. A disciple of the Buddha must refrain from taking life either by performing the act of killing, by causing someone else to do it, by doing it in a roundabout way, by praising it, and by other means. One must never intentionally kill a living Christian by creating the causes or condition for death, by developing a means of taking life or by engaging in the actual deed of killing. It is a duty of the person who practice to be compassionate toward others and to lead them all to liberation. And so in, on the contrary, you were taking pleasure in harm, this would be a serious transgression. So here, what he's telling us is that in a way we, okay, we, we, you might not cause harm directly, but do you do it in a roundabout way? Do you cause someone else to cause harm? And often I reflect in terms of that on gossip, when you are gossiping about somebody else and then you are making somebody else dislike someone else, possibly lying about it and thing of that nature. And so it's kind of interesting. It's really looking at the condition. We might not do it directly, but are we doing it in a roundabout way? Are we causing someone else to do it? So it's really looking at the different aspect in a way of our action. So it's not just about intention, it's also about our action and also how we use a condition to possibly harm someone. And then you have this one. This one I think is kind of uh, very useful. Refrain from being angry. When someone comes to ask forgiveness, treat that person well. And then he goes on to say, one should present a compassionate mind, 
If on the contrary, somebody on the path should abuse a living creature or vent one's anger on an inanimate object, and if even though he may have reported to beating them with his hand, a stick, a knife, and the person has politely begged forgiveness, the anger remained unappeased. This would be a very, very serious transgression. So here, what is it saying? It's saying, this is interesting. Yeah, it's not recommending anger. I mean, it's not saying you should never be angry, but it's saying, well, if you are angry, generally it's going to cause harm to yourself or others. So try not to do it if possible. But then what it's saying, uh, do not hit people. And then I like this little kind of uh, funny one. Do not hit inanimate object. So you can imagine this was created in, a, in the fourth century in China. And you can imagine somebody, you know, hitting the axle of a cart, which was not working. Nowadays, we might hit our car if it's not working or our computer. But I find it wonderful, this precept, because it shows people have not changed very much in a thousand years, thousand five hundred years. We still kick inanimate objects if we're frustrated or angry. So that's by the by. What is uh, very important is when he talks, he says, if somebody begs for forgiveness, please take it in and do not refuse it. And from that, there is actually in the temple, in the monastery, you have the ritual of forgiveness. And so you, if somebody make a mistake, they go to somebody a little higher up, you bow three times, you say, I made a mistake, and then it's all forgotten. And for me, this was so striking. Because when this happened to us, and we made a mistake, and the, somebody would say, you made a mistake, we would say, but no, we had this reason, that reason, and that reason. And they look at us like, why do you make this complicated? Why don't you accept? You know, you make a mistake, you ask for forgiveness, it's forgiven, and off we go. We can, you know, go back again. What is interesting often with our forgiveness nowadays is we might forgive, but we don't forget. So we might give the impression we take the forgiveness in and we give it, but then we remind them two months later, but you did this and you did that and off we go. I find that interesting looking at forgiveness. How do we give it or not? And then the last one I want to share because it's a, it's a very beautiful one. And this is care well for those who are sick Upon seeing someone who is afflicted with a disease, a disciple of the Buddha must care and provide for that person as if that person was a Buddha. And first among the eight fields of blessing is that of nursing the sick. And this actually you can also find in the early text. This is when you get the meeting of this text and the early text. Because in an early text, there are some uh, people, some monks who don't take care of a sick monk. And then the Buddha arrives, take care of the monk and said to the other monk, 
why did not you take care of him? And the monks say, well, he did not do anything for us because he's so ill. So why should we take care of him? A little egoist, these monks. And the Buddha said, no, 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 you are in a community. You need to take care of each other. And you need to treat monks or nuns who are sick like if they, me, like if they are the Buddha. So in a way, I thought that's what I wanted to finish my talk with. So now we are uh, 30 minutes of uh, meditation. This will be followed by uh, 30 minutes of walking meditation. And then we'll have 45 minutes of discussion where we can look at everything that is in the chat. And maybe we don't look at what's in the chat during the meditation. So, but we'll uh, keep the, uh, during the walking meditation, we'll keep the room open so that we can keep the chat, otherwise we would lose it. So if we find a comfortable posture, and actually for the meditation, I like to offer what to me uh, exemplify the ethics of emptiness. And it's actually the practice I did in Korea, which is just very simple practice. You just sit in meditation and very quietly, silently, inwardly, you just ask a question, what is this? So that's what I will suggest. So if we find a comfortable posture, we try to find a posture which is grounded, stable, like a mountain, and also wide open, like the ocean. We could first start with the breath. Just bring our attention to the breath. We breathe in. And as we breathe out, we can ask, what is this? We are not looking for an answer. We're just trying to open to the whole moment. The whole flow of inner conditions. Meeting outer conditions. Without defining anything in it. But relating it. Relating to it. With wisdom with compassion. So breathing in the breath of life and breathing out what is this?
Now we could locate the question in the belly. So bringing the tension in the belly. And from the belly ask this question. What is this? Relating, meeting all of life without grasping. Coming back to the question, what is this? Coming back to being deeply embedded in life.
what is this? Experiencing the precariousness of life, the preciousness of every life. What is this becoming a question mark?
our life rests upon a single breath. Each person's life rests upon a single breath. Can I treat well myself or those who are sick?
can I cause the least harm to myself and others? Can we be generous to ourselves and others?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.